Hello, my friends. Today, Joel is talking to Trevor, the co-founder and CTO at Soundstripe, and they discuss his journey from touring musician to CTO, how Soundstripe enables musicians to make a steady income from creating music, and how to know when to trust your gut for big decisions. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. How, how did you wind up uh, meeting Jonathan? So I, you know, looked up the different podcast people that were out there that had, you know, good podcasts sure. and uh, Developer T was one of them. Oh, yeah. And so I reached out to him. And he was busy like traveling at the time. And then like, you know, a year went by and we like tried to connect again. We basically misconnected for like three years <laughs> of like just every once in a while, I'd be like, hey, I, I like what you're doing. Like I'd see a series he did. And I'd be like, oh, that's cool. And we'd chat a little bit. But then um, finally I was like, everything just came together well with with COVID because we had more time. Right. And we got together and got to know each other on a couple of different calls. And then we did a podcast together. So that's awesome. Yeah. yeah. We've, uh, I've known him for, I mean, like I said, since we were teenagers, but, um, yeah, that, that dates back a while. I mean, both of us were in music, uh, prior to software. So yeah, we go way back. Yeah. And you're still in music though. Yes. Uh, yeah. In a very different way than I was, um, when we, you know, when, than I was years ago, which was, uh, in my early twenties, I, I was a touring musician. Oh yeah, what were you playing? Uh, I played guitar. Um, that's actually how me and Jonathan met. Was um, when I was let's see, when I was twelve, I picked up bass guitar, but then I decided I wanted to to try electric, and uh, I went and took a few lessons. And Jonathan was my teacher, so uh, I, uh -huh. he was like fifteen, I was thirteen, I think, or fourteen, and um, we just stayed in touch over the years. Somehow, both of us got into software. And, uh, you know, he, I don't know if he talked to you about this, but he actually was in, um, I believe he was with a signed artist for some portion of time. And, uh, you know, I, I wound up after I got my degree in computer science, um, when I got out of college, I toured full time for, um, yeah, three or four years. And, uh, the whole time I was on the road, I worked remotely as a software engineer. So, um, yeah, that both music and technology have had like huge, uh, huge parts of my life and are both big passions of mine for sure. Oh, nice. Yeah, I play as well. I play guitar. Nice. Um, it's, I think it's funny that you said that. So my parents, they had gotten my brother a guitar. And then so for me, they got me a Carlo Robelli bass guitar. That's awesome. I didn't want to play bass guitar solo because I saw my brother. I wanted to play that. So eventually I, I just got rid of the bass. But um, yeah, it's... Uh, it's pretty weird how I keep meeting people that have a similar background. They end up as technologists. They go from musicians, touring musicians, technologists. I just talked to this guy um, where we had him on the podcast named Brian. Uh, he is a CTO of this thing called the Office Experience. And they're not like Soundstripe, right? But they're, they're, they do this um, like design and uh, digital transformation cool. and innovation, right? So they um, uh, are a really, really interesting company, but he's, he's, he did the whole touring thing, right? Okay. And uh, did that for years and years and years. And then 
now he's the CTO. And then that's after this happened like three or four times, I told my production team, I'm like, there's there's this weird trend of this recurring. <laughs> that's so crazy. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely, I feel like people have this thing in their mind too, where like if you're a musician, uh, it's just, I don't know, there's some dichotomy or like polar opposite mindset from doing something technical. But the reality is, is that both, um, I, I think from the individual contributor level all the way to, uh, you know, management strategy, et cetera, like all of those things are extremely creative in the software field. I mean, when you're building everything from architecture to, um, you know, decisions, even design decisions, um, which in our company, we actually uh, contain within the engineering department, which is a little different than how other people do it. Um, but all, all of that is super creative and I get the same, I don't know, dopamine hit or whatever it is from building software and, you know, like growing, uh, really entrepreneurship, growing a business that I do, uh, from playing music and creating on that side. They're, they're different flavors of the same thing for sure. Like I, you know, when you're playing on stage to like thousands of people, that's obviously a very different experience than, uh, very intimately managing people on a day-to-day basis. Uh, but both are extremely rewarding in their own ways for sure. And so can you give me a little bit of background, like the high level overview of what Soundstripe is? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I mentioned, uh, that basically I became a touring musician out of college and my degree was in computer science. I double majored in audio engineering and computer science. And as soon as I got out of college, um, if I'm remembering this story, right, uh, you know, this might be one of those things where like your stories get better, the older you get, you know what I mean? <laughs> but if I remember it right, um, I, I know this part's true. I auditioned for this band that was signing a record deal and I got the call that I got in it. And I think, uh, I was actually in cap and gown doing my college graduation rehearsal when I got the call that I got in it. Um, so either way, I knew that like, once I graduated, I was going, head first, uh, into what had been my lifelong dream, you know, trying to, um, to tour and I quote unquote, make it as an artist, but I had this degree. I'd just spent all this time building. So, um, once I got out of school, um, the band I was in, we also had a very, um, unique kind of development situation. Um, because of that for the first year or so we weren't going to tour. So we were going to be in town doing development and, uh, doing the early, um, early stages of building the the brand and the band itself. And because of that, um, you know, I felt like I had a good opportunity to try to still, um, put my foot in the door of technology and really try to, uh, pursue that at the same time. I started interviewing for some jobs. I had a really hard time, you know, landing anything because, uh, I wanted to be ethical about it. I knew that like in a year or so I was going to have to work remote or, you know, it just wasn't going to work. Uh, so I told everybody that, and of course, you know, we'd get, we'd have a couple of interviews, but as soon as the conversation came up around touring and the potential there, this was 2013 and remote work was definitely not the norm, uh, then. And I told, especially being on the business side now, I totally get it, but they're just as a junior developer with very little to no prior experience, there weren't a lot of people out there willing to like take a chance on the fact that, uh, I'd have enough time to get up to speed to really be effective remote. So, um, I, I all, you know, couldn't get an offer. Um, but, uh, one of the guys 
Shout out to Dennis Monzewick. Uh, he was the senior, a senior engineer at my internship in college. He did an email intro with the CEO of a new startup in town. And um, that guy, also shout out to him, Rob Humphreys, great guy. We still get dinner a couple times a year, me and his family. Uh, I sat down at coffee with him a couple days after like three job offers didn't manifest and told him my situation. I was like, I, I want a tour, but I need someone to give me a shot. Like I'm, you know, I'm a hard worker. I promise, you know, I just need, uh, just need some, uh, need some resume under my belt. Didn't have it yet. So, um, he said, uh, you know, i he loved that I was a creative and he was looking for like a kind of a specific working arrangement. Um, as far as like, I, I was going to be contract. Um, and he was just getting this company off the ground and I was like, I'm totally willing to work with that. And so he was like, great, I want to help you pursue both dreams. So, uh, I started, I, that was like on a Thursday, the next Monday was my first day at work. And he honored that about a year in, we started touring. I got to work remote, um, I eventually, uh, both me and him wound up moving to other opportunities. Um, and over that time period, I worked for an app agency. I built websites for, you know, everything from startups to doing, um, agency work for like large enterprises and fortune 500s and stuff like that. So I had developed a lot of experience in that time. I started doing some freelance work and all of that led me to, uh, Soundstripe when one of my freelance clients, I was still touring full-time at this point. Um, and I had a 30 hour a week retainer with an app agency, but I was still, I was still doing like dabbling in some things on the side. And one of my freelance clients, uh, he was like, Hey, I've got these, these two guys you need to meet. They have an app idea. <laughs> I mean, uh -huh. of course, every, like if you're in software, everyone's got an app idea. Right. So, um, I was like, man, I, that I really appreciate that, but I'm just slammed. Like I also was trying to get a side hustle SaaS product off the ground with a different business partner. Uh, and like I said, I was touring full time, 30 hour a week retainer. I just had no time to do something else, but he was like, look, they're great people. Um, just meet them, you know, get dinner with them, whatever. I think they'd be good for you guys to know each other. And I was like, yeah, totally down for that. So, uh, that wound up being who are my now business partners in Soundstripe. So, uh, <laughs> Micah, um, uh, who's one of my co-founders, we went out to dinner, fell in love with him. He introduced me to Travis, our other co-founder, fell in love with him. Um, and there are co-CEOs and we had a, just a very, um, unique dynamic between the three of us. Um, don't know if you're an Enneagram fan, but I, I'm an Enneagram three, Travis is a five, Mike is a seven. So we make this weird kind of triad and, um, we're very different people, but our values are very aligned. So from the get go, we were, you know, gung ho about working together um, while I was still touring and I was working on all that other stuff, uh, I was really amped. It, honestly, we hadn't landed on what the business model was going to be yet. So I, I wasn't even super sold on that. I just knew if anybody was going to do this, it was going to be those guys. And I wanted to be a part of it. So, um, on the side, I wound up building an MVP. Uh, we launched it four months later. That was February of 2016. Um, and we were, you know, whenever I was home from tour, we were working out of Travis's bedroom. There was just a few of us. We were all kind of just, you know, working for free in the hope of some stock that might be worth something. And um, for the first uh, year or so, we we did that and we grew faster than any of us anticipated. We bootstrapped and about 10 months into it, I quit touring to focus on it full time. Um, 
And then uh, about two years in, um, we crossed like the million ARR mark and decided we wanted to go out and raise some venture capital. So um, yeah, we just, we grew it from there. In 2018, we raised a half million seed round. Uh, we quadrupled the business that year. And then in 2019, we went out and raised uh, another 6 million in a series A. And today we're, we're about 80, right around 80 full-time employees. Nice, nice. So what does the Soundstripe product actually do? Yeah, yeah. So uh, we were trying to solve a couple problems. One was it's really difficult to make a living in music. Uh, all of us are the poster children of that. Micah, Travis, both were uh, touring and session musicians as well. Um, Travis, I mean, he filled in for... George Strait, Willie Nelson. Uh, we always joked he's like the real musician of us three because he <laughs> plays fiddle and he's a prodigy. But um, And then Micah was a touring rock guitarist like I was. And all of us had, you know, we'd, we'd had uh, history in the business, but we also had, you know, intimate familiarity with like the difficulty of making a living doing it because I would not have been able to tour had it not been for software. Um, I mean, I vividly remember... Matter of fact, it was the largest show of my career. We played um, we played at the Georgia Dome. There was like 38,000 people there and my paycheck was $50. So I played that show and then got back on the bus and was building software for about that per hour. You know, like it was like, this is bizarre. Like, where's the disconnect? So um, again, Mike and Travis have similar stories where uh, they <laughs> they both stopped playing and moved to the tour bus driving seat. So they basically got their CDLs and started driving buses for artists because your day rate was much more than it was as the musician. So in in Micah's case, he actually was in the same band, uh, but he just stopped playing guitar and started driving the bus and made more money. <laughs> so... Uh, yeah, we were trying to solve that. It's a, it's difficult to make a living as a musician, even supplemental income, right? Like we weren't trying to make the next Katy Perry. We just, um, you know, and part of our business model was centered around trying to provide a, a, a stable or, you know, side source of income um, creating music because a lot of the people I toured with, when they would get home uh, in order to make ends meet, you'd still be working two or three other jobs. Like you'd uh, be a waiter or, you know, have DoorDash, some side hustle, something to pay the bills when you're not on the road or in between. And, but the idea for this was like, wait a second. Um, we found this interesting niche where um, we could create a structure that was a win on the business side, but also allowed people to own their craft and create music uh, in as that source of supplemental income. So that was so, that was the one pain point we were trying to solve, and that's on the artist side. The other was, as a creator, it's really tough to find great music. And around the time we were starting, it was almost impossible to find something that was, um, like either stock music was synonymous with like elevator music or, uh, or you had to pay every time you used it, like for every project. Um, or the licensing was really complicated. So there was no like really streamlined way for a high output content creator to get a lot of music for a lot of projects that they had no idea where they were gonna go, right? Like some some somebody who's starting out on YouTube doesn't know if a video is gonna go viral and they don't wanna have to worry about, you know, if it takes off overnight, going back to renegotiate or buy an enhanced license or something. Like we just didn't wanna have to, we 
that was a pain point we had seen and we didn't want uh, creators to have to deal with that. So those are the two sides we were trying to solve. We wanted to, you know, create high quality music uh, at an affordable cost for high output content creators. And we wanted to do it in a way that it was a win, win, win for the, the company, the artist and the consumer. That's pretty neat. So, I mean, from my perspective, we needed some background music and a couple sounds for the videos that we were doing. So we searched around and the easiest one to use was you guys because it was like, here's a subscription. Everything's unlimited. You can access the whole deal. And it was just really easy. That's awesome. Is it still like that? Yes. Is it still all like that? Yeah. Very much so. Uh, that's great to hear because that that has really been like a core focus for us is trying to simplify that. And you know, similar to, you know, we're not an enterprise product. So we're not like, we don't deal with a lot of uh, feature creep in the same way a lot of enterprise products do. And part of it's because we're really intentional about that. But um, what we do try to do is we're, our uh, product roadmap is much more similar to a company like Netflix, where they're doing constant 1% improvements and really dialing in the engine under the hood. So, you know, if you our website has definitely gotten a lot prettier over the last five years since when we launched. But uh, usability, um, it, it's only gotten easier to use and less cluttered over time because there's um, we've done a, a ton of um, like really intense, even R&D projects on everything from um, the terms that people can use to search, uh, you know, like our filters in our sidebar. Uh, surprisingly, that was like a essentially, and it's still to some degree, but it was definitely like an unsolved problem in the space because you would go to a site and you would see like the terms, like, you know, you'd look at like a list of moods that you're trying to search by and in your head, you're like, oh, I want to, I, I need like a dreamy song, right? And you'd see the dreamy tag or whatever that you could filter by right next to like, an ambient or an ethereal and you're like well what's the difference so that was actually something we spent a lot of time on is like making sure that every part of our application is extremely intuitive um but is you know you can still drill really far down uh, and get really specific uh, and so to your point yes it's still very much um a, a simple product and we've actually made it more simple over time now um used to, we asked that, uh, if you were working on multiple projects that you would just record it in your account and that would act as your license. So like if you did, uh, you know, I don't know, like if you were uh, working on a client project and use the same song in two different ones, you could come back and license it again. We got rid of that whole flow. And, um, now we, we integrate with YouTube so that if you're uploading something to YouTube, basically now you just download the music use it whenever you want as long as you're actively subscribed all of the like content id you know copyright uh claims and stuff all of that's done automatically so you don't have to you don't have to deal with any of that so yes it's only gotten more simple over time for sure that's pretty neat and so why did you guys want to raise capital i mean you had a it sounds like it's a pretty cash flow positive business yeah, it was, uh, we were definitely growing quickly, but we also saw that, um, you know, the market just continued to, well, really it was blossoming, but it was also, you know, there was new competitors popping up daily. At that point, we had actually had one or two competitors that popped up. We had one in particular who still exists, so I won't name them, but they, they literally ripped off like our, 
Um, I mean, they literally like stole creative we were using, like our images, our slogans, our all this stuff on their site. And it's it's not like one of the bigger names in our space. They were just like a smaller company that popped up. But we started seeing that kind of stuff. Um, and we were like, okay, there's enough of these popping up. It started to feel like what happened with stock photos about five years prior where there was a million of these like mom and pop kind of boutique yep. licensing things, right? And then they all started getting gobbled up by the two or three like big competitors in the space, the Shutterstock, Getty Images, Adobe's. And right? they all kind of blur and to become one. Yeah. And, like, and then they start pushing these ancillary brands and you're like, I'm not, I think that's iStock, but it's a different <laughs> logo. And then you click on it and you finally end up getting back to iStock. Yeah, it's crazy. That's exactly right. So we started seeing that same thing in music. And the reality was, is we didn't want to get left behind. Uh, we didn't want to be one of the little shops that got gobbled up or, you know, pushed off the map or whatever. We wanted to be one of the two or three big players. And uh, we felt like there was a time horizon on that. The only way to do that was to raise capital and really, you know, put some fuel to the rocket. Nice. Well, with that ARR, you probably got really good terms too. So that's that's good. It's way easier than starting with $0 and raising half a million. Exactly. Well, and that that's actually... Um, you know, before we had any revenue, like when we had landed on the idea and stuff, we had uh, tossed the idea to a couple investors and no one really bought or, you know, like part of it was probably we didn't have a pitch nailed. I mean, we made a deck and stuff, but we also didn't know what we were doing. Um, and so that may have been part of it. But the other side is that, um, you know, there also there was an element of the, you know, the classic startup story where like no one gets it until they get it. Like there was, that was definitely a thing where we would, um, like we had conversation with like, uh, publishers, like music publishers and borderline get laughed out of the room. Like no one's going to pay for this, like a $15 a month subscription. There's no way there's not enough demand, blah, blah, blah. Um, so some of it was like, okay, well, we'll just, maybe they're right, but let's try to prove it and see what happens. So that, that was, uh, you know, I think, we were trying to prove it to our, you know, the people who had said no, but also to ourselves. And so once once we got there and realized how big the market was, how fast it was growing, that's when we decided to to put some capital in it. That energy of proving people wrong. It's a powerful thing, my friend. It's driven <laughs> me many places in life. <laughs> that is so true. And honestly, like I I don't know. I feel like every every founder is so different. I feel like everyone's got their own story and such, but for me, that's like part of the exciting part too, is like trying to, because it doesn't always work. I mean, my first uh, business, the one I was talking about that was a side hustle before Soundstripe, we wound up putting that thing to bed a year in because <laughs> we couldn't sell it. It was like, we had built this product and frankly, no one wanted it. So it was, you know, it was exciting at first, but we also knew uh, when to quit and, um, you know, that, that to me, it's not always like successful, but that excitement to like find and fill a need and then people start paying for it. Like that, that was hard to beat for me. That's like a big motivator because it was a lot of fun to, uh, you know, hear user feedback of like, oh my gosh, I've been looking for something like this. And again, people putting their like hard earned money into something you've built. That was a really rewarding experience to me. How did you get content like day one? You put this up, you need a lot of stuff. How did you get the original content? Yeah, uh, we started as more of a marketplace model, right? So we did it as like a rev share. A um, couple reasons. One, because we had no money. And two, because that would 
you know, in our eyes at the time, uh, it seemed like a really reasonable way to do it. And plenty of uh, marketplaces operate that way. But as we grew, um, you know, we, we had friends, we were from the industry, like I said, so we had friends, um, who had hard drives full of songs that were just unused. Either you, you know, you tried to pitch it for a commercial and it didn't get picked. And that could be for a slew of honestly, like minute reasons. Like you could have a great song, but they didn't like one word in the lyric. And instead of asking you to revise it, they're just going to pick one of the other 500 submissions they got that fits perfectly, you know? Um, so you'd have a hard drive of like great songs that have no value outside of a video. A lot of our producer friends had that. So that was our, our early catalog was a lot of them. Um, but as we grew, uh, we started experiencing pain points from it. One, due to a rev, uh, having a rev share like that, artist paychecks fluctuated. Even if it was slightly, it still fluctuated with the business. So if, if we, we had down months in the winter when there's not a lot of like wedding videos happening or a lot of, not a lot of content being made. Um, so if acquisition is lower in those months, so is the rev share. So um, that, that wasn't a huge effect, but it was, it was something we started to notice like people would start to rely on it and it didn't matter how much notice we gave of like, hey, it's a slow month for us, be prepared or whatever. People, you know, it's still a thing. So that was one piece. The other is that we curated all the content that came in. So we were basically picking, um, you know, and signing essentially, not really because it's not like a record deal or something. But when we would sign artists, um, yes, we would still curate and pick the music, but there was also like a, beggars can't be choosers thing where like we weren't buying this stuff outright. So like we didn't have a whole lot of say, we didn't have a whole lot of control of the content, which also meant we couldn't be as selective as we wanted because we just needed content. Um, and uh, we also felt like um, we could really, you know, we could be a marketplace and have a bajillion artists and the top 0.1% make some money while everybody else is living off scraps or, we could slim that down a bit and uh, try to create a different acquisition model that was a little more upfront, a little less risk um, on both sides, et cetera. So what we did is we moved to buying music and we acquire all the rights upfront. So we own um, all sides of the copyright, uh, master and publishing, but this gets complicated. Music, again, licensing and music rights are insane and very antiquated due to copyright law. but uh, on the publishing side, there's uh, a federally regulated royalty called performance royalty and broadcast TV has to deal with this. Um, and like, uh, any kind of public performances like, uh, movie theaters, stuff like that. So that royalty, um, the writer share, it's split two ways. There's a publisher share and a writer share. The writer share goes back to the original, uh, author of it. We felt like that made sense. They're the ones who wrote the actual composition. Uh, but we still own and control all those rights. So when, what we do is we pay up front to buy the music and then that gives us a lot of leeway to like, we can commission exactly what we want. We can go out and find artists who specialize in it and work, uh, work with them. We can do structures that are still stable and recurring, like, um, you know, like recurring contracts. Like if they do a, um, if we really like their music and it fits in a particular need that we have a lot of, they can 
we can do like a recurring contract where they're submitting music monthly. So it's more of a stable thing for them. And we also have, um, we actually have W2 staffed artists. So um, we have a, a section of our artist pool that's actually on staff with us, as well as our mixing engineers, mastering engineers, et cetera. We have a whole post-production team in-house too. So we moved to more of an acquisition model. It gave us more control over the music and how we could use it and allowed us to simplify licensing like I was talking about. But it also gave us the ability to really find the content we wanted and it gave us the ability to make it as good as we could um, with that kind of like in-house post-production team I was talking about. It sounds like your record label. We are, uh, yes, on paper, one way to look at it is we are a, because we are a tech business, like a quarter of our company is product and engineering, but we have, um, we're basically a record label and a publishing company as far as like legal entity goes. Uh, but we own our distribution, which is soundstripe.com. So we're not beholden to making money from the Spotify's of the world and stuff like that. We do because we own the rights. We make money from all sorts of different revenue streams, including traditional listening like that. Uh, but our main distribution um, is where we re recoup most of the uh, the benefit of the copyrights we buy. Yeah. That's pretty neat. I I totally get the um, the concept that you these producers have these large hard drives with a bunch of songs that because uh, my brother in law is a producer nice. and yeah he was you know he will like share songs with me sure. I'll be like that song's great and he'll explain to me like how the industry works like there's political aspects to it like you yes. can have a great song but the person doesn't have a right story and they don't have like a huge social credential at that point in time or or it's a great thing but it's going up against something that's like slightly hotter if it came <laughs> at a different time it would have worked so true and they end up having like all of this stuff like these songs that these producers sit there with the artists and make and that never really do anything that is so true and it's you know we, the way we saw it is like look there are because we buy the rights like we're not shy about that you know there's but, but there's a lot of this is kind of soapbox but i also feel like there's a lot of like i hate to use the word misinformation but the reality is is that there's just a lot of uh rhetoric i would say around like don't sell your rights don't sell your rights by all means if you're not comfortable with that don't do it or if you don't know what you're doing don't do it but at the same time if you tell everybody that you have a whole i mean the majority of the industry you've got all sorts of people who are holding on to a hundred percent of nothing because unless you're in the top point i know this intimately like i was an artist right like if you're unless you're in the top point one percent um, you know, you're in Katy Perry's band or you are Katy Perry or something like that's a hard living. And again, going back to that rhetoric, there's this whole like thing about like people feel really, sometimes people feel really weird about selling their rights, but we all look from the time we started, we have artists that were literally there day one when we launched our company that are still with us today, um, that have seen us you know, we went through that change from marketplace to acquiring copyrights and stuff. And some of those are even on staff with us. And the reality is, is there is a large portion of musicians who have a mortgage, a family. They don't want to tour all the time, like, but they're really good at music. So they need like a nine to five or a contract job in music because that's what they're good at. So 
that really all we did is like there is a route to become the next Katy Perry or to go out and gig for big artists like that or try to make it right like that exists but just like in every other industry there like you could be a graphic designer working for an agency or you can start your own graphic design agency and be the business right you trade stability for the upside of potential reward later if you start your own business in music the latter is the only thing that exists. There was no go work for a company. Like you have to be your own brand, marketing, you know, all this stuff. So all we were trying to do was provide an option there. Like if you're trying to be the next Katy Perry, we are not right for you. Like don't sell your stuff to us or make some stuff on the side and sell that to us and do your Katy Perry stuff, you know, uh, as your as your dream thing, just like people would do with a side hustle or something. So yeah, I mean, it, the industry is tricky. And I think a lot of it is because it's built on an old foundation that has like a lot of storytelling built around it that I think can be detrimental to some people for sure. Yeah. That's so interesting. I'm learning so much right now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm glad it's uh, like I said, it's a very, a, a lot of the industry is, um, you know, it evolves very rapidly, especially as mediums change CD after cassette and then now streaming, et cetera. Uh, so this stuff is changing always, but it's super interesting. Tell me a little bit about, I think you said you have around 80 people. Yeah. A quarter of those are engineers. Um, that size company I'm, I'm pretty familiar with, but I'm curious to know, like, what are you experiencing today? Like, what are the challenges you're facing today as a CTO? Yeah, I honestly, I feel like my job is different every three months and that speeds up the bigger we get. So now it's different every month or so. But um, the stage we're at, I'm very fortunate to have an incredible vice president of engineering uh, who has grown with our organization. He came on board a couple years ago uh, as a contributor and just worked his way up. And uh, he is unbelievable. And definitely my right-hand man. I mean, he handles a lot of the day-to-day as far as like operational excellence and, um, you know, shoring up everything from um, security to uh, best practices and stuff like that. And I oversee a lot of that um, just in general, but I'm not doing the like day-to-day execution of a lot of that. And at the stage we're at now, we're at this strange in-between where my focus is sort of uh, on the R&D side And so he's handling a lot of the like, again, day-to-day operational execution of the like product roadmap from the engineering standpoint. But there's, there's a lot of projects we have because we own all of our music, we can do a lot of really interesting things with it in our core business, in ancillary markets. There's like a lot of ways we can leverage the copyrights we built. And the other thing, and the reason we're different from a typical record label is like even the majors, like the the universal musics of the world and stuff like um they're not set up to be a technology first company they'll buy tech companies but they're not a um you know in the same way that like the procter and gambles of the world go out and buy the uh like dollar shave clubs of the world and do that as their r&d that's kind of how the majors work so we're a little different because we are the company doing the r&d and we have an awesome product and engineering department so what I, my, I'm, I'm in this kind of like limbo stage where um, I've been able to delegate a lot of the day-to-day so that I can focus on what I see as some of the more like 
10,000 foot view, further out, R&D stuff, where are we going in 12 to 36 months? Um, but I also, we're not big enough to where I have enough resources for that. So I am dabbling in a lot of these R&D things myself or having to bring in people um, to kind of flank me on some of them. And uh, like, there's some AI stuff we've been looking at and we do have some uh, AI talent on staff, some really good AI talent, but they're in other projects. So I can't pull them off like really high priority stuff, but I myself um, don't have a ton of uh, like actual, like I haven't built a production level, you know, um, AI model where I've like, written a journal about it or done some kind of like true research on that. So I'm in this stage where I, I know my strengths, I know my weaknesses. Um, and my strength is in the R and D side, but I've also got to figure out how to be most effective with my time for the sake of the business and my team and everything else. Um, and so I'm, I'm basically an R and D department of one. And that is, that's probably like the, the most recent biggest challenge I've been facing is like, how to make sure I'm leveling up our organization on that side until I get enough resources to do that. Um, and it, again, even that looks different as we continue to grow. But uh, right now I've been like pruning the tree of potential R&D projects and figuring out like 80-20 principle. What are our biggest bang for the buck that I can have an impact on and maybe bring in one or two people? And then what is the stuff that can wait, you know, or like, what are the, especially because we're in a competitive industry, what's the stuff that is gonna, from a technology standpoint, put us ahead to leapfrog some of our bigger, more well-funded competitors and things like that. So these are the kind of things that are in my head when I go to sleep every night, for sure. Are you, you have a large subscriber base, right? That's wants you to be successful. Do you pull them at all? Like bounce your ideas off of them? Yes. Yeah, so um, we actually have a user focus group that's basically a, it's like a, it really, it's like a VIP panel almost. It's basically like our, you know, longstanding customers that have been with us a long time um, who are very responsive to surveys and stuff. We can pull them together and do all sorts of different like focus groups or product testing or even um, like we, we've done one recently where we showed them some demos of things that, um, like one was a project that I had built and, uh, it was like a demo of something we were really excited about. And then two others were like kind of more far flung things, but we wanted to just like do a litmus test, you know, see what the appetite was there for some of this stuff. So we got them together and, uh, showed them some of these ideas, but it wasn't, it wasn't even just a focus group. Like half the time we spent just getting to know, to know them and like learning more about not necessarily like, you know, every in and out of how they work on a day-to-day basis, but like the things they care about as customers, like, you know, um, and it's different depending on the persona. That's a unique problem in our industry is that, um, you know, you need music for all sorts of different creative projects, podcasts, all the way to wedding videos, YouTube videos, and there's different pain points with each of those. So, uh, yes, we do do focus groups and we run a lot of these things by them. We'll show them demos, hopefully early enough to where we don't waste a bunch of cycles. But um, that's that's definitely a, a big focus of mine for sure. What's the uh, startup scene like in Nashville? Pretty active? Yeah, it is. It's um, it's 
more active than it used to be, but it is, I would say, um, there's a lot of like early stage companies. Uh, there are some that are like, um, you know, I'd say like above the 20 employee mark, but most of them I would say are pretty early stage. And a lot of the startups around here are in the healthcare space. So there's a lot more popping up that are in music or even outside of that. Like I think, um, I think Pilot has a headquarters here, which is like the automated bookkeeping service. Um, so there, there's, there are definitely uh, some larger startups like coming out of Nashville now or moving here, et cetera. Uh, but historically, it's either been primarily healthcare or just smaller startups in general. Those automated bookkeeping services are like crushing it. I just talked Crazy. to this founder of, I think it was like called Bots something. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was like, yeah, we go in and we categorize these transactions. And we have AI. And I was like, you're the fourth company I've heard <laughs> that does that. And you guys are all growing at insane amounts. And they all have, you know, they're plus 100 employees and they're, they're just crushing it. Yes, it's insane. That uh, pilot, the company I was referring to, I think, I think Stripe is a major investor of theirs. So there's like... Oh, cool. Yeah, there's a lot of, a lot happening in the, in the fintech space in that particular area right now. Man, I'm blown away. Every time I visit Stripe's homepage, there's like 80 new products. They just, oh, it was like, it started with one <laughs> and then there was like two or three. And now there's this menu and you go there and I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. I think there's 20 to 30 products and they're yes. dropped down on their homepage. They just do so many things now. Oh, it's bonkers. You can even um, like on their site. Uh, no, I take this back. This was on an article I found, I think, but someone basically built out a timeline of Stripe product launches and it was like, you know, Stripe core, like the thing, their subscription stuff and all that. That was like early on. And then as years went by, they added their like billing products, which is some of the more advanced subscription features. But I mean, just like their growth, their product launches hockey stick, like in the last like three or four years, they've launched majority of those. It's crazy. I know. I'm excited though, because I was like, right when they came out, I was dealing with, um, what was that horrible service? Authorize.net. Yes. Where like they had the most convoluted API and the application process was multiple days of like sending paper back and forth and doing all. And then you can, and then like all of a sudden, one of my buddies told me, he's like, hey, check this out. And he, he found like a gem, like a Ruby gem. I was programming in that language at the time. And he sent it to me. He's like, check out this Stripe API with this Ruby gem. I was like, all right, cool. And so I checked it out and I was like, I just signed up for an account and charged my own credit card. <laughs> he's like, yeah. I was like, I didn't have, I, I filled out like one form and like put in my social security number, like check the box. And that was it. He's like, yeah. He's like, this is what it's like. And from there on, every single project I did, you know, another 20 projects or so as a developer, uh, I put on Stripe because it's like, look, put it on Stripe. Don't worry about it. And it's great. Exactly. Yeah. And th- that actually, we we uh, we started on Stripe. Eventually, we had to we had to move uh, to a subscription billing management tool. So we used Chargebee on top of Stripe. Oh, yeah. Um, but part of that, there was a lot of reasons for that. One of those was... Um, we wanted to start offering PayPal and we had already gotten to a point where we were building custom features on top of Stripe, many of which Chargebee offered. Um, so yeah, eventually we had to, now we still use Stripe for our card payments, but um, I, they, I, I know Stripe has launched more of those features since, but um, I, we, we love Chargebee and have had a great experience with them, but it was definitely, we were nervous switching uh, to anyone from Stripe early on because we had, 
uh, same situation. I'd been developing on them for, I mean, now over a decade, but um, we've had such a good Isn't experience. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, it's wild. <laughs> it's crazy. It goes by so fast. I know it. It's yeah. wild. When I saw those Charge B like services, you know, when they started to emerge, because we were doing it before they existed and then they started to come out. And I was like, I don't get that. I was like, why would I give a percentage of, you know, revenue when I could just like build this? And then I realized very quickly the section of the market that is the advancements and billing features moved so fast. Yes. That like you need a team of engineers and billing to keep up with all the new things you can do in billing. And so uh, those services all of a sudden became really interesting. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I think Charge B just uh, like they just became a unicorn. So, I mean, if you think about it, they're like they're like another layer abstracted even from Stripe, and it even that market is huge. It's crazy. Yeah, and then you can focus all your resources on not on like figuring out what happened with the payment reminder emails and the interfaces for getting people to update their credit cards before it expires. And you can instead just work on your core product, like your alg- your search algorithms and just make it better. Exactly. Exactly. And that was, we've done a lot of that, uh, of trying to, you know, anytime we start to build something, um, we'll go through kind of like a build versus buy analysis. Um, but I, I really try to focus heavily on like what we should only build what's core to our business and anything outside of that, like let's off source, outsource, whatever. Um, and yeah, that's, we've again done that with Stripe being a great example, but there's a lot of things under the hood that if they aren't core to what problems we specifically are trying to solve for our customers, then I don't, I don't mind outsourcing all of that stuff if necessary. Have you ever done any like team augmentation with like an Andela or something? Uh, we had actually, I've talked to Andela a couple different times. I actually love what they do um, just from a mission standpoint. The only uh, issue and the reason we hadn't gone with an Andela or any other uh, kind of sourcing firm like that um, was purely because, um, you know, there were, it, at the stage I was looking um, to potentially partner with them at, we were still looking for local talent. Like now we're remote first. We've stayed that way. Even, you know, a lot of companies are going back to in office and stuff. Um, we're, we're staying remote first. And uh, at the time we were still looking for remote talent, but even beyond that, um, you know, we had uh, me and some of my other engineering leadership had, um, we had worked with outsourced teams in the past and sometimes we had great experiences, sometimes not so much, but given the stage of company we were at, it was just one of those things that, um, I didn't know, you know, I, in order to make the best decision for us at the time, uh, it felt like we needed a little more, um, control over, uh, basically like some of those earlier hires where we could do, um, you know, having some of the local talent for some of our early positions, I do think was beneficial for us in particular, um, just because we, uh, we had a really tight office culture early on and, um, you know, we, we kept trying to figure out like, cause we had started to add remote employees, but we were like, how would we make this work? Um, you know, we could do different time zones and such. Uh, and you know, with Andela in particular, there wasn't necessarily a language barrier, so we didn't have to deal with that. Um, but it was purely, um, 
you know, we had enough of a network at that time where we thought we could source some of those early roles ourselves. And uh, since then, you know, at the size company we're at, we could probably go back to that and look at it. But at the time, it was one of those like risk versus reward. Again, I loved what they did as a mission. And I actually thought that there was a lot of um, uh, a lot of value we would get out of um, talent from them because of how they train them. Um, and a lot of their, like, um, a lot of the uh, the education that people that come through Andela get, but they didn't, the other thing was two of the roles I was looking for at the time, they didn't have, um, they didn't have talent that was at the, um, experience level. So I was looking for like, um, I think it was a senior engineer with a specific focus. I can't even remember at the time, but they didn't have anyone for that. Uh, so it was a combo of like timing potential risk. It was a new partner, even though I loved what they did. Um, I'd never worked with them before, that kind of stuff. Yeah, well, it's really important at the beginning of a code base or a project that you have some really magical, awesome people that you can under- that understand the problem deeply because that, that sets the tone because nobody wants to work on a garbage platform, right? Exactly. And so if you get a nice well-groomed best practices as as much as you can uh, type base uh, software, then you'll attract people that want to work on that and expand it. A hundred percent. Yeah. And that was, that's definitely like, and again, and not to say that that couldn't be done through Andela by any means, but um, no, it's just different because like different. if I have five, if I have 500 engineers and I need to boot up 20 or 30 and call up Andela and be like, this is how we roll. This is our, call. you have such a, you have such a mass. If, once your mass gets to a certain point, yeah. it becomes even easier. But you know, that core, that solid foundation, me personally, I, I would hire full-time people for that solid foundation. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's how I felt at the time. The other thing was that uh, I also felt like I didn't have any room to make a mistake because like, let's say, let's say even the interview process with someone at Andela or whoever, I'm just using them as an example, but let's say it went well. Um, if like, if, if there was a, even a hint, cause one of the things that companies like that offer you is that like, if, if the hire winds up not working out, you know, they'll figure it out for you or whatever. Like I, I didn't have that luxury. Like it was, you know, we were too small, uh, at the time we were not capital intensive. Um, like we, we didn't have enough cash in the bank to like, you know, potentially have like to make a wrong hire. I didn't feel like I had that opportunity. I'm curious to ask you this. All right. So I was thinking the other day as I was scrolling through LinkedIn, I saw this article and it said, don't use your gut when making hiring decisions. <laughs> and then you scroll a little bit farther and it's like Jeff Bezos, like another article, Jeff Bezos has made every important decision, not on data, but with his gut. And I'm just like, this is the most perfect. If I could get these in a screenshot, it'd be awesome. This is the most perfect example of how the world works post like 2020, right? 100%. It's like, we're going to tell you one extreme and then the other extreme, and we're going to make it look like valid, credible sources and good insight and advice. So I've, I've decided that, or have the thought that the thing discerning between what you should do and how you should listen and how much you should listen is like the art form that will make you successful. If you listen to everybody all the time, you're never really doing your own thing. And so you kind of have to block stuff out. So I'll go through periods where I'll consume a bunch of content and I'll go through periods where I don't do anything. And I just apply things and get my own experience. How have you, how have you, have a lot of people been, I guess I'll ask a pointed question. Sure. 
have a lot of people like giving you specific advice. And do you find that a lot of people are doing that and you're having to filter or people like not talking to you about advice? That is a great question. Um, one, I completely agree on all of that. And uh, two, to answer your question, when we, especially as we were early starting out, like we didn't go through a startup incubator or anything like that. Again, we were working out of a bedroom. I I was touring full time until the business was almost a year old. And so there was, there was like, we had our own dynamic. We were kind of living in a bubble. Like we have the Nashville Entrepreneur Center who is awesome. And I actually like, um, just like you were talking about giving back, I try to do that there now, which is basically me just going in there saying like, hey, we screwed this up. Don't do the same thing. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. um, like, here's where we messed up. This is what we did, right? You know, um, and, uh, you know, I, we had, but even though we didn't go through something like that, we had a lot of, um, matter of fact, uh, another shout out, Scott Welch, incredible guy. He was um, my band's manager and when we started Soundstripe and I quit the band, he was like, or I, I told him like what we were doing. He's like, what are you doing over there with that thing? And so he uh, came on as an advisor um, and is still a mentor to all three of us founders. But like we had people around us that were still pouring into us and giving us advice and things like that. At the Today, I mean, there is an uh, we still try to source feedback from our employees and such because we want to make sure we have a good pulse on that. But I mean, we get more feedback than we can handle from everybody else, you know, whether it be like um, advisors or partners or investors or whoever else, like there's always someone giving feedback and a lot of it is helpful. Not all of it is, right? And that filter is incredibly important. And uh, again, this like, I don't say this to be a polarizing statement, but one thing that uh, my dad always told me, so he's a small business owner. Um, he's a lawyer and he's owned his practice for uh, 40 years, 40 something years. Um, he has always told me that like, just how underrated your gut actually is. So like, I don't base every decision on my gut by any means. I'm an engineer. I base lots of things on data. We're very agile minded, data first, et cetera. But there are definitely, uh, to me, my gut is the litmus test that things have to pass through where like, if we're stuck on a big decision or like the data isn't giving a conclusive answer, almost always I have some sort of gut feeling. And the time, I mean, more times than not, when I don't go with my gut, I should have. And the times that I have, it's fine. You know, whether it was better the other way or not, um, I tend, my filter is a lot of things, data being one of them, et cetera. Uh, and, but at the end of it, I have, my gut has to be comfortable with it because it's also one from an ethics standpoint, it's gotta be something I sleep with at night, but just from a practical standpoint, um, there's like, and I'm, a, I'm about to quote something totally unsourced so everyone feel free to look up how accurate this is. But to me, there has to be something to your gut. Like it comes from your subconscious. I mean, that's your, your subconscious is what controls your anxiety response and all of that is tied to your gut. Like there is something there. So whether it's, you know, the wealth of knowledge you've accumulated over your life that's trying to tell you something or whatever it is, I do believe there's something to gut. And for me, a lot of times that's the last hurdle anything has to get over is gut. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, I read back, back in the day, something like there's like five, 
100 to 500 million neurons in your in your gut like very similar i think it's like slightly less than what's in your brain yep. I, I could be whoever knows this stuff you're brilliant <laughs> and there, that means there's probably like one person cringing the one person that knows the answer to this is cringing <laughs> love that but there's a lot the point is there's a lot like some people call it like the second brain but i know what you mean they're that gut is like the great filter. Yes. It's yeah. Like all the data happens. Everything occurs. You do all your due diligence. But then if it doesn't feel right, <laughs> yeah. I've never had something like not feel right and be like, this isn't going to work. Or like, I don't know how to explain it because it's not, it's nonverbal thing. It's a right. gut feeling, right. right? Right. So you get that feeling that it's not going to be right. And then you do it. And like my ratio is like 99.9% <laughs> of the time. <laughs> yeah. Like I should have listened to my gut. Same. <laughs> A hundred percent. And there is something to that. You know, I don't, I also, um, and even like what's crazy is there's like talking about the gut thing. This is a whole other subject, but like, uh, the microbiome or whatever in your gut, like the bacteria Mm -hmm. and how all that stuff is like, um, that like, and that's, that's part of what I think you're talking about that there's a lot of, there is a lot of science behind that and how it affects your brain and stuff. And I mean, even like, so I say that about my gut, but there's also an element of like, you also literally have to keep your gut healthy because that stuff affects your brain, your decision-making, any of that kind of stuff. And like, I actually make it a point. Um, so even in like normal decision-making outside of that gut filter, et cetera, um, I, th- I think that's actually a super important thing um, is just like health in general, especially for decision-making because it's, uh, I mean, you can't, you can't make big decisions or important ones or, uh, or decisions that like I was giving an example of a minute ago that are on a seesaw, right? Ones that have like, that you can't quite figure out what the right answer is. Um, mental, physical, all, all health ties back to that stuff. And I actually think that's like a super important part of being an executive or a people manager or whatever is keeping yourself healthy. Yes. I, first of all, you hit on a very passionate subject of mine because uh, I used to be obese and now I'm really fit but um, that's awesome yeah yeah I I wanted uh, when I got hit by that car I got really depressed you know because I couldn't sure. go out and so, so I blew up and got really big and like middle in the beginning of high school and then I noticed that the girls in high school were attracted to like the athletes and I was like I need to look like that to get the girls to happen <laughs> right <laughs> so right. that was my that was my natural uh, motivation to to you know live a healthy lifestyle. But I, when I started doing my startup and I was having my first kid at the same time, I uh, said I need to train like an athlete, mm. right, to get everything right. Um, because the the more I train, the clearer my thoughts are, the better I handled stress. And so, about I don't know six months ago now, when pe- pe- I get people that write to me all the time from the podcast, right, like send me emails sure. and ask me questions and stuff. And when people ask, like, what, what can I do to get an edge or what, what should I be doing as a CTO? And I will almost always respond with something like health, physical, like go work out. I go, go understand macros, uh, you know, fats, totally. carbs and proteins. Understand like you don't have to change your diet. Just understand what you're doing to yourself. Like, you know, you put the right fuel in your car right? <laughs> yep. Like you give your dog a measured amount of food so it doesn't get overweight. Like it's just when it comes to humans, we're so strange. And so it's like my best advice is if you're not working out regularly and if you're not 
conscious of like not following a fad diet, but like just understanding the core principles of nutrition to know that you're giving your body the nutrients it needs, like understand those things and you will be in the top 1%. Well, understand them and do them and you'll be in the top 1%. It's not that hard. Yeah, it's not. It's really not. That's the thing. Like everyone has access to this with the internet now. So like that, I mean, I actually, like, I love the physical benefits of working out. I go five days a week as well. And I have for years, but the, the mental benefits, this is like, people don't harp enough on this is like, there is, I mean, if, if you go to the, if you like get up early one morning for anybody listening, if if you're not active, just get up early one day do something at the gym, you know, run for a bit or like try to lift some weights, do something. Um, I promise you mentally, you will be more stimulated that day than you have in weeks because it, and, and you feel so successful. Yes. Yeah. You feel successful (laughs) and that's all you've done is gotten up early and worked out a little bit. Exactly. And all of that, I mean, there's science behind that too, like setting healthy habits, but like what it, how that like affects, um, you know, as you're going through your day and you're learning things and you're trying to like collect new information and process all of that, like working out actually helps your brain organize. And like, there's just so many benefits. I could go on for ages about that too, but totally agree. I think there's like a a massive component to that, that, that aids in not just like success or whatever you want to call that, but like feeling like there's a difference in like being successful and feeling successful. Like you don't have to, you know, sell your company for a bajillion dollars to be, or to feel successful. Like if to me, like I, I'm content and happy when I get up every day and it's not that, but I have OCD. Um, you know, I deal with anxiety heavily, like all of those things are real and I don't mean to detract or dismiss those by any means. Um, but I like, I know that when I'm in my routine and I'm doing things that actively like benefit me, I feel just like you were talking about, like you feel accomplished, you feel successful. You feel like you're, you're doing things that are setting you up for success. Uh, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of benefit that you derive from that for sure. Yeah. And that, that structure helps a lot too. Yes. Like the discipline, it, it bleeds over into every area of your life, whether you like it or not. Discipline's not like you, it's not like you can have a large amount of discipline in one specific area and it not affect other areas of your life. It just does. It always bleeds across. Well, and a lot of it is because you'll see the positive effects you get from that discipline and it will naturally carry over into other things because you're like, oh, well, it helped me in this way over here. Why would I not do the same here? You know, totally agree. Yeah. Yeah. I felt like, um, like a religious person the first time I had these realizations, <laughs> like wanted to go out and sell everyone on like, <laughs> just be healthy, just right. wake up and go for a run and, and just understand nutrition. And people just like, look at you like, it's <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. I mean, it, like it's, but it's also one of those that like, I, I don't, um, you know, when you, I think, what is the science now? It's like 250 something days to make a habit. It used to be like 30 days. I feel like it just gets longer every year, but it gets longer. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> but the reality is, is like, once you have that habit and you see the positive benefits of it, I, it's natural. Like you want, you want other people to thrive and, you know, and that's where that comes from. Is that like, I don't know, feeling like you've, you've found 
not the thing, right? But something that helps. And I, some of that's healthy too. Like I know friends that, um, like the only reason they got started in a healthy habit was because someone pushed them into it. So if anything, I'd give you a pat on the back for that. There we go. Look at this. Do you have one of these? Have you, do you know, uh, atomic habits? I do know atomic habits. I don't have that journal. Yes. So this is by the guy, James Clear. He partnered with Baron Fig and they made a clear habit journal. It's pretty cool. That is rad. I'll have to check that out. Yeah. I like it. It just helps me like track tiny changes, remarkable results. I don't know. It's pretty useful. That's cool. But I, I got really into that. The moment I heard that guy's YouTube or whatever it was where he gave, he gave like a Ted talk or something about habits. I just instantly was like, who is this dude? <laughs> he is brilliant. He's speaking truth. And like, you just sometimes know things are true. Like sure. you hear them. Yep. But I want to, I want to um, step back a little bit and talk about like mental health. And oh, you yeah. mentioned uh, OCD can be like a superpower or a curse. Can you explain that? Yeah, totally. Um, I, I got diagnosed with OCD when I was 26. <clears throat> and frankly, it was in a very, uh, one of the darker periods of my life. Um, I had, it was, okay, we were, let's see, we launched Soundstripe in February of 2016. And this was in October 2016, I believe. Um, in a 30-day period, I quit my band, got diagnosed with OCD, uh, ended my engagement with someone, and got a dog and lost that retainer job, which was my steady paycheck. So it was like an insane amount of life change in 30 days. Uh, and Soundstripe was not big enough to pay us full-time salaries yet, or you know, at least nothing comparable to where we were at. So um, part of my OCD journey was understanding, and it's still a journey, I'm still learning things like, but I'd had it my whole life. And a lot of people think of OCD in particular as like, um, and these are true for sure, but like people that open and close a door 50 times, or you, you know, you have to buckle your seatbelt 10 times to get out of the car or something like that. Um, and those are very real symptoms of OCD, like side effects that are basically like outwardly performed rituals to relieve anxiety. I didn't have many of those. So I never thought I had OCD, uh, like that. I had, there were different points in my life that I remember thinking, Hmm, I wonder if I have OCD, because I, in college, I was like driving my car and noticed that it kind of bugged me if I had a window down and the other one wasn't at the same height, like that kind of stuff. Um, but uh, that was really all the thought I had given to it. And what I learned, um, I was on tour. I was dealing with what are called intrusive thoughts. And uh, you don't have to have OCD to have intrusive thoughts. That's like a very common thing that... Uh, many people with, um, with and without, humans. yeah, exactly. Humans. humans. I was about to say yeah. with and without mental illness, um, deal with, but I was having intrusive thoughts on the road. Uh, and due to the nature of OCD, they were obsessive. Like I couldn't stop ruminating on them. It was driving me crazy. Um, I was in our van at the time and I Googled I don't, I literally don't even remember what it was I was thinking, but I Googled whatever it was. And the first article that popped up was an article, I think on psychologytoday.com or something. And it said how OCD minds think. And I clicked it and immediately I was like, I don't have OCD. Like, I don't, 
my house isn't even clean. You know, like I just didn't think that was the thing. So I went into it though and bullet point after bullet point, like I started crying reading it because it was exactly how my brain has functioned since birth, basically. And I thought everyone was just, was like me, but uh, it's just how my brain processed. I, and I came to learn, I basically had a broken fight or flight. That's really what OCD is, um, where it misappropriates thoughts or other, you know, other unknowables, like things that live in a gray area as threats that you have to figure out and fix. And that's where the anxiety comes from. Um, and from, again, it was a journey for me, but I learned how much it has affected relationships, uh, you know, whether it be friendships, romantic in nature, um, business relationships, et cetera. Uh, less so friendships and business relationships, more so romantic for me. But uh, I did learn about that. And I learned how um, going to the superpower part, like, yes, it can definitely be a curse. Um, but if I can, like, for lack of better phrasing, like channel it into my work. And honestly, it's a big part of who I am and why, um, you know, it, it's part of what makes me I think decent at my job. And, uh, it's, it's part of like, you know, I can like, literally you can put a 10 page legal contract in front of me. And within seconds I can start pointing out grammatical and spelling errors and everything else. Like, and a lot of that is due to my OCD, um, finding imperfections and like, you know, that kind of thing. So, even though, uh, and it also makes me like obsessive about the things I care about. So if I'm like, um, like with Soundstripe, I remember in, we had given ourselves a self-made deadline in June of 2017, where I was, uh, on the technical side, we had, uh, we were a rails app, but I was rebuilding it as a rails API with a react front end. And I was the only dev still. Um, and at this point, um, we had thousands of paying customers. We were closing in on a million ARR. So it, like there was stuff at stake, you know, it had to work. And I, uh, that week that we launched it again, it was a self-imposed deadline. Um, but I, I was at the office for 120 hours. I was basically there for like, like in one stint. Um, I was there from Thursday morning at like 11 AM until Friday night at 6 PM with no breaks. And, that, but you know, plenty of people without OCD have strong work ethics. That's not what I mean. But I do know that like when I get on something, if I'm like in it or focused on it or whatever, like that's where that obsession's like, uh, it's like all I think about naturally. So when I was building that, um, first side product that wound up not working, it's another good example. I would come home from my nine to five. And if I wasn't doing something for my band, I would sit on my couch and program it. And I would do that for like, I'd go to work 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. I'd get home and from 5 p.m. to midnight or later, every night of the week through the weekend for a year, I built that piece of software. Um, and again, a lot of that is being able to like take my OCD and channel it into something. I wouldn't necessarily say that was healthy, but channeling it into something productive. Um, so that's, that's what I mean by it. it can be a blessing and a curse. Uh, it's just a matter of, I have to, the more I've learned about it, the more I know about it and the more I can deal with it and direct it when useful. Yeah. So treatment for that, like counseling or therapy or 
awareness of it? How does, what's the treatment for that? All of the above. So there's, there is a really effective form of therapy called ERP exposure response prevention. And, um, I, uh, I do that with a a guy named Sam Greenblatt in New York. I do it virtually. I found him on a podcast, actually, and I've reached out to him because I was like, oh, this guy's amazing. Um, And he's awesome. Um, And basically what it is is you you take something that is triggering you uh, and for anyone listening to this, don't do this on your own f- at first. Uh, cause it sounds easy to do, but you, it can actually become an obsession itself if you have OCD. So, uh, but basically the way it works is, um, like I'll sit down with Sam and, uh, we'll take something that is triggering me lately, whether it's something at work or some, I don't know, moral predicament or, because uh, that that's an area where my OCD thrives typically is like gray areas and ethics or morals or whatever. Like that's a really common one for people with OCD. Like, am I a bad person? Do I think this way? Could I think this way? You know, like all that kind of stuff. And so we'll take something that's triggering me. I'll explain it to him and he'll dive in and say, okay, why do you feel that way? What is, because all of it centers around an uncertainty that you're trying to prove to yourself. No, I'm not that way. Or no, yes, I am. Or what you're trying to, find some concreteness to put it to bed. So what ERP is, is you get exposed to whatever it is that's triggering you. And then you're trying to uh, prevent how you were responding before. So that's the exposure response prevention. So um, I'll get triggered or whatever, and I'm sitting there thinking about it and my anxiety's, you know, rolling over and triggering or whatever. Um, but the idea is you just sit in it and you basically talk yourself through, like, I will never have certainty on this and that's okay. Maybe it is this way, but maybe it's not. Maybe it's this way. Maybe in you basically like what that does is it actually, um, and there's a ton of science on this retrains your neural pathways, um, to stop forcing you to find like basically the reason it is an issue, normal people that have like, I say normal, I mean, I don't know if any of us are normal, but you get my, you know, uh, it, any thought that's intrusive, uh, if you don't have something like OCD that latches onto intrusive thoughts, trying to remedy it, um, it would just pass through your head, right? Like you could have, everyone has bizarre, or uncomfortable or whatever thoughts, but they just go in your brain and out. Like, but with OCD, your fight or flight triggers and it's like, whoa, why did you think that? Are you that kind of person? Or like what, that's where it, then it just starts a cycle. So what you can train though, and the reason that happens, that fight or flight triggers and you feel extreme anxiety. So it's almost like the thought you just have, you're, it's like you're feeling guilt as if you've done something or you're, you know, so it feels real and it feels like you got to fix it. So what ERP does is it trains your brain your subconscious to stop triggering that response or at least to let you control it. Uh, and it works. It is crazy. Like you can experience um, extreme relief within just like a few sessions. Like you you will actively start to get better. You will stop like um, proper treatment. You should stop experiencing obsessions for as long. Like that time window should start shrinking down to where you would have what's considered like regular anxiety, which is like, okay, you know, if you get a, if you get a call that your brother's in the hospital, you're going to feel some anxiety. Every human would. That's not because it's from a mental illness or something. But with a normal situation, like one I just gave, 
should I think about some random thought I had for the next 48 hours and try to prove to myself that I'll never think it again or whatever? Probably not. Like that's not healthy and it's not changing anything. So you can actually, you can lessen everything after that five minutes uh, is the way Sam explains it. Everything after that first five minutes of anxiety, you can kind of like collapse to nothing using ERP. So that's been really successful for me and something I'm still actively doing. Something you said reminded me. So my previous like landlord for the commercial property for the for the business mm-hmm. uh, where we were renting from, uh, he owns like, a couple buildings, but he's a trauma psychologist, oh. like a really cool one locally, like, you know, the personalities like regionally. Yeah. And um, so when we were wrapping up, because we just did this move like a month or two ago, um, we just hung out and talked about like his book that he's writing and just like in the office as we were, you know, as everyone was moving out. And he said something that really stuck with me as he was explaining to me what he does with trauma psychologists, like with his patients and everything. He said, um, the brain has like no, like a certain, most of the brain has like no understanding of time, like the animal part of your brain. It's like animals interact in like real time, right? right? Yep. There's a threat, you deal with the threat, you move on. There's pleasure, you deal with the pleasure, you move on. You're dealing with everything now in the now. But so that part of our brain exists of like dealing with the now, like I walk up to you and punch you in the face. You have to deal with the now, right? right? Yep. But we also have a part of our brain that can think of the past or think of the future. But the, the other part that's not thinking of the past or future, that's just like observing it will have those emotions that it can't tell that you're thinking about the past or the future. Mm. It's just reacting to the thoughts you're processing through it. Interesting. Right. So that's why you can think about the past and be sad. That's why you could think about the future and be happy. That's why you can think of like a an, a, an awkward moment you had and like <laughs> ruminate on it and get crazy about yep. it, right? It's You can bring all of those things up. You can bring all that stress, all that emotion, all that anxiety simply by thinking. And it's because that part of your brain doesn't understand it's not actually happening right now. That is wild. It's, isn't that wild? That makes all the sense in the world. I mean, because yeah, you're essentially your brain is treating it as if it's that part of it is treating it as if it is a real time occurrence. Yeah. That's why. Yeah. Yeah. Like people will like relive breakups or whatever it may be sure. and it, it'll just be horrible. And so it's like, man, how many people are out there like torturing themselves that don't realize this fact and like they're feeling like you, once you realize that this is how part of how the brain works, you can, you know, be more forgiving with yourself about, I have a great reason not to think those thoughts now. Totally. That I mean, that's been a huge thing for me too, is the more I learned about it, I I was able to develop more grace for myself, honestly, because I was like, oh, I whatever it may be, this thought I'm having or whatever, like, it's okay. I'm not, you know, this isn't the end of the world. It isn't something I have to figure out right now. And like taking all that weight off of it was a huge thing for me. Uh, and I did, I did uh, Prozac for about six months just to kind of like, it, it helped lessen that anxiety response for me. Um, or at least that's what I felt from it. Um, so I felt, you know, okay, this is what less of this would feel like. And I got off meds because I, I felt like I had the tools to, I knew what it felt like to be on meds and somewhere between where I was before and where I am on meds is where I'm at today. And I was like, if I, for me personally, I felt if I can, live off of meds, uh, and live in this kind of middle spot where I'm not like 
everything's not perfectly dandy, but I'm able to do it naturally. That worked for me. So I was like, I'm, this is where I'm at now. And it, so far so good. How did the Prozac feel? Uh, I mean, I had like, I didn't have any kind of like crazy side effects or anything, but, um, really what it did or, uh, and maybe some of this was placebo, but for me, um, I would still have this, I deal with the same type of thing, but I didn't have that crazy gut wrenching response whenever, uh, I had a thought or felt, you know, felt it's not that I, you know, I would still feel guilty over things like any human with a guilty conscience, but I didn't have this unnecessary, crazy anxiety response to things. It helped dull that a bit. So I could more clearly think through situations without all the added burden of like, I already feel bad about it and I don't even know what it is yet. I haven't even thought about it, you know? Um, yeah. So that's how it was. That's how it was for me. Um, yeah. So it kind of maybe helped with the physiological response. Yes, right? Exactly. Because that that will they um they amplify each other they create momentum you have the psychological like the thought and then the physical response and then that creates like stress and you can it starts to manifest in the body and that re-triggers the thought and it's just this like vicious cycle a hundred percent yeah that that for me like I said that's kind of why it helped me uh, think more clearly through any situations I was dealing with or whatever um, and yeah a lot of it <clears throat> truly was just understanding it like feeling like I had a, um, you know, more of a grasp on what it was and that it wasn't just some, I actually felt good that I could say, oh, this isn't normal or whatever, because I, like, if it was normal, it was like an uncomfortable way to live. And I had done it for 26 years, you know, like I, was still happy with myself and stuff like that. Like it didn't lead me. Thankfully, I didn't deal with a ton of depression from it. Um, but being able to put a name to it gave me, I felt empowered for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And I like that you talk about it too, because it helps other people. There's so many things in life that we experience and we think about that our brain just edits out. Right. Yep. And we don't end up talking because there's a stigma around it or something of that nature. Totally. Um, so I've always tried, you know, from the day I started this podcast and just as a human being, um, I've always tried to just be as genuine as possible and put it out there. And even if it's like awkward or whatnot, sure. just because, um, I mean, we've always said, even from the time we started the company, like, EQ over IQ, you know, like if, if I had to pick one, I would EQ every day of the week. Dude, this is awesome. But before we wrap up, uh, just like for, we like to do a leadership thing at the end of the podcast. Cool. So either some of the best leadership advice you've ever gotten or, uh, something you would tell your direct reports when they first become leaders, I'll leave it kind of open for you. Yeah. Um, actually one of the best pieces of advice that I was given, uh, is a little maybe oxymoronic. Um, but, uh, it's from one of my business partners that like, they're really, there's a difference between quitting and giving up and there's, there's not shame in quitting. Like sometimes that is the best decision you can make. Uh, and my life is an example of that. If I had not left my band, I would not be doing what I'm doing with Soundstripe right now. Um, if, uh, and that was a very scary decision. They were at the height of their career. They're still killing it and going strong. Um, and I mean, there's been 
a handful of things in my life uh, that have operated that way. To get into that band, I had to quit another band who was also, we had a bunch of opportunities that were presenting themselves. Um, and it, but it was a risk, you know, but it, it also wasn't the same as giving up. I was intentionally quitting something and that there, I didn't feel shame at it, uh, at it at the time, but you know, you read a lot about like, don't quit, don't quit, never give up. That is, if that is another example of a rhetoric that could definitely be bad advice, there are some things you probably should quit, you know? Like, I know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that one, um, that one has rung true in my head for years since I've talked to my, or since my business partner talked about it. I love it. I love it. And it, and it highlights how important context is to advice too. I totally agree. Yep. Just because if it, just because it's a Musk clip or a Jeff Bezos clip for 30 <laughs> seconds on Instagram, everyone will instantly apply it to their current day. And I'm like, whoa, <laughs> I go back, I'll go back and watch the hour long talk it was extracted from so I can understand how he's using it. Exactly. Well, it's like the Bezos thing where you were talking about where he's like, all the big decisions made from gut and stuff. That does not mean, you know, like every decision I make today is going to be purely gut. Like there is so much more under the hood of that comment, you know? Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you would like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.